0: A 10 or 11 week series on the kingdom of God, looking through um, what it means to live in God's kingdom and what it means that Jesus is all about building God's kingdom and how Jesus came to usher in God's kingdom and he sends us out to extend God's kingdom. That was last week. We ended that in 10 weeks, but this week, in the next three weeks following this, that's basically the whole month of July, I think it's four weeks in July, uh, we're going to be going through a series called Unhurried. Unhurried. And um, in, in some ways, it, it, builds on a, it builds on what we were talking about, because as we were talking about um, what it looks like to live in the kingdom, as a kingdom person, this probably could be, if you want to classify as, like, what it looks like to live with kingdom rhythms. Last 10 weeks, more about what the kingdom is and how to live in it, and then this next four weeks, if you wanted to extend it to make a 10-week series, 14-week series, it could be what it looks like to have kingdom rhythms. Open is okay, so dope, you can't get three followers and do your three rock. So I've been hearing those rock followers for the last year. So it's never, never stuck. I love it. We're work through it right? uh, so Unhurried is the series title. And if you had a timeline underneath this, it would be probably um uh, what it looks like uh to practice rest. What it looks like to practice. Rest. I don't know. I don't know if you know that you can practice rest, but you can. And there's practices of rest that I think are really needed in this kind of busy culture we live in as Jesus people. But maybe you don't see Jesus as a kind of person that offers rest. You see, and you think about Christianity. You think about hard work. You think about serving. You think about commands. You think about burdens. You think about rules want to tell a story, Dallas Willard, if anyone ever heard Dallas Willard before, he's a teacher, author, pastor, he passed away a couple of years ago, um, but brilliant man, uh, this is brilliant man, if you don't know him, write down his, a lot of books on spiritual discipline, on spiritual motivation, impactful, and he was having lunch one day with this guy named Bill, and he was mentoring Bill, and he turned to Bill over lunch, and Dallas said, hey Bill, if you had one word to describe Jesus, what word would you use? In one word to describe Jesus, think about it for yourself. In one word, that's pretty hard to describe Jesus. What would you use? And Bill tells his story of like a passionate, loving, sacrificial, just, truthful, merciful, forgiving—all these things that we would say, yes, 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 amen. How do I choose one? And Bill doesn't have an answer. He looks at Dallas, and, and Dallas has this kind of pace about him. He's kind of slow, and, and he's unhurried himself, and. He looks at Bill, and Bill asks him, hey, Dallas, what would you say? Dallas says, if I have one word to describe Jesus, I would say relax. Relax. I don't know about you, relax does not make my top 25 words as I think about Jesus. And it's not because Jesus wasn't relaxed, it's because of how I bring in my biases and my culture and my ex- experiences to the text. I'm not looking for it so I don't see it. I don't think Jesus is relaxed, or I don't categorize him as a relaxed person, and I don't know if you would put relaxed in the top 10, 15, 25, or even top 50 of what Jesus would be considered to be among all the other things, but just think for me for a second. Think with me for a second through the Gospels. Have you ever read the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, see Jesus' life. Was Jesus ever in a hurry? Was Jesus ever in a hurry? I don't think he was because he didn't take, he took 30 years to start his ministry. If the son of God, if anyone was going to start early and start doing a lot of work, it should have been Jesus. He had a lot to accomplish. And he started at age 30. Interesting. That even when he started at age 30, there's a reason for that. In a obscurity, when he started, the first thing he did was spend a month and a half in the desert by himself praying and fasting. He wasn't in a rush, he wasn't hurried, he wasn't anxious, he didn't live frantically, he didn't live irritable, he was always present and loving, he had margin for rest. If you track these two points in the Gospel of Luke, specifically, you see that the busier Jesus got and the, and the more demands that was pressed upon him, the more he withdrew away from the crowd to the silent quiet and desolate places to pray. Did you notice Jesus withdrew? He, he said, I, I'm sorry. I'm this type of God, but I can't help you right now. I got to get away. He was not hurried. He was relaxed. He had margin for rest, margin for solitude, and margin for interruptions. If you're not relaxed and you're frantic and you're busy, you don't have time for interruptions. Or if you do get interrupted, they get in the way of what you're trying to do. You get irritable. Jesus was never irritable at the interruptions. He was present to the person and moment that was right in front of him. And I don't know about you, I know for my life, I have a guess about you, that I, um, I want that kind of life. Where I'm present and grounded. Where I'm not rushed and going from one thing to another, another thing, irritable and frustrated, and don't have enough margin for the things that really matter in this so the heart of this series that the question we want to a- answer, and today's sermon is more of a burden than anything. It's, I think it's worth the whole standalone series, if are not rushed, take it out of time. This is an example of being unhurried, that the whole today's sermon is basically a big burden for why the next three weeks matter. The question that we we're going to ask this series is, what does it look like to live at the pace of Jesus? If you're taking notes, you can write that down. What does it look like to live at the pace of Jesus? Of Jesus Jesus had a pace about him, a cadence, a rhythm, a way of doing life that wasn't just about his teachings, but how he lived and what he did, how he chose to prioritize things. He had a cadence. He was relaxed. And don't get it twisted. Relaxed doesn't mean you don't work hard. Relaxed means that while you're working hard, you're relaxed. See the difference? Relaxed isn't that he never worked hard. Jesus worked a lot. Relax is that in the midst of his work, he wasn't frank. In the midst of his, quote unquote, busyness for God's kingdom, in a good sense, he wasn't anxious. He had a pace. So I want to live at the pace of Jesus. I want us as a church to live at the pace of Jesus. And we're going to explain why that matters so much. The outline for today's message is three parts. We're going to look at the offer that Jesus is offering and extending to us. We're going to look at the, the reality, the problem that keeps us from that offer. And then we're going to look at the solution. So Matthew 11 is what we're going to be. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. The offer, the reality, and the solution. Hopefully by the end of today, my goal is that we will be convinced that, that not only is rest a possibility, but it is the way of following Jesus. And that the way we get rest is different than what we imagine, how we imagine it. The way that we get rest is different. Another way that question this for the message is: What is the the secret to experiencing the rest that Jesus promised? I say secret because it's clickbait but it's really not a secret. What is the secret? What is the answer, the solution to experiencing the rest that Jesus promises? So Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Before we read that, we're going to slow down and be present and pray. But you can turn there, Matthew eleven. Once you you there, you just uh, put that Bible down and pray. Lord, we, we worship you this morning. We worship you this morning. God, man, it's just so, so easy to be distracted, to be frantic, to be having our mind on so many things. We can't even focus on one thing, which is most important, that's you. Even in a moment in time like this. God, would you help us to be grounded and present right here, because you're right. Help us to slow down. If you're sovereign, we can live a slow life. you getting what you want to be accomplished. From. so We can live at your pace. Help us to not live running ahead of you, but right beside you. Would you teach us through your scriptures this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me read this. To you and with you, Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. This is through the ESV version, especially take the 5 version. Matthew 11:28. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, heavy burdened. Raise your hand if you have never heard this verse before. It's my favorite verse we actually spent about a couple weeks, uh, a year and a half ago, talking, Pastor Spencer and I, about the gentle and lowly part of this. This is where it comes from. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. Wow. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's my favorite person in the Bible. Favorite person in the Bible. Why? Because I need to continually be reminded to come to Jesus. So I don't always feel that Jesus is offering here a very clear and special kind of rest. The offer is very simple. Come to me, those who are tired and worn out, those who are burdened and exhausted, those who keep on hitting the wall, those who have no more energy left, those who are burdened by expectations and weight even from Christianity. Come to me. And I'm going to give you. Soul rest. Not just rest, but soul rest. And I want to make a, a, clar- a clarification. This kind of rest is not as much rest from work as as much as it is rest in work. Jesus isn't offering you a vacation. These are great. vacations are great. He's not offering us a vacation. He's not saying, come away with me, child, and just don't live this life. This life is evil. Come away and just don't work be a hermit, be a monk, no, no, that's not what Jesus is offering because Jesus modeled something very different. He was always, often with people. This rest isn't to be away from people, it's to have rest in a posture, spirit of rest while you're with people doing the work. A couple of ways to explain this rest. One, it's an inner tranquility, inner tranquility. That's the word rest here. And then very Much compounded and highlighted when he says soul rest. You don't need the word soul to understand that definition that Jesus had in mind was his inner tranquility. Then he adds soul to it to let us know it's a rest at the deepest part of our being. Not a rest in physical labor as much as it is a rest at the deepest part of our being. Come on, we know that sometimes we can be rested from physical work and still feel very stressed. And in fact, I know this. Trust me, I've lived this life. Okay, I'm not preaching you, preaching to you from this like masterful experience. Uh, I'm preaching to you from this experience that so I have burnt out, been anxious, and friendly most of my Christian life, doing good things. And even when I pulled away and took a break, the inner part of my heart and soul was still felt like it was cluttered and pressed and crushed. And frantic like I didn't have an inner peace in me no matter how many days I took off this is an inner peace at the deepest heart of your being not just the inner tranquility it is spiritual rest right that's, that's where the, the spirit functions in our soul and in, in, in our affections that's where our, our life is animated it's not frantic or feeling lost and wandering but walking with God at his pace in his way Doing his way. Walking with God at his pace. In his way. Doing his will. It's not enough just to do the things of God in our own way. The way that we're supposed to live is doing the works of God in the ways of God. The Pharisees did the works of God in one sense, the outer shell, but the ways in which they conducted themselves didn't wasn't conducive for a restful soul. It's not you for feeling lost and wandering, like this spiritual identity crisis. Am I with God? Am I not? Does He love me or am I not? That that means there's busyness in this soul. And he's saying, I'm offering you this, this secure, grounded reality that you are walking with God. He's for you and He loves you. That's the soul. Lastly, this is taken from Solomon. Point three, it is still waters and green pastures. Jesus is our shepherd, right? And through the valley highs and lows, he promises to take us and lead us and make us lie down in green pastures and lead us beside still waters. It is an inner stillness, quiet from the inner noise. When I stop working and start resting that all the noise starts getting cranked up to volume 10. Like, my busyness keeps me from feeling frantic, and then when I stop, all the frantic, anxious chaos wells up because I stop. Usually when I rest, I get sick. Like, what? Yeah, because I've been going, 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 and then I finally stop, and my body's like, yeah, you're done. You've got overextended yourself, now you're gonna get sick because your body's finally catching up to everything you've been pouring out. You haven't been pouring in. And Jesus is saying, This is the still waters and green pastures that hopefully, as we live this kind of rest, we would characterize ourselves as being refreshed. Refreshed. You characterize your Christian walk, your relationship with Jesus as being refreshed. It's a life present and grounded. Enjoyed. Like you're aware of yourself and you're aware of other people. You can't be aware of yourself and other people if you're not at rest because you're so frantic. There's so much fog and chaos. You can't be with the person in front of you. I've been in meetings, pastoral meetings, just regular meetings, and I've been so chaotic because I've been so busy going from one thing to another. I was there, but I wasn't there. You ever been there? I was listening, but I wasn't actively listening. I couldn't. Like My my, my mind was racing, and this is Jesus is saying, I'm offering you a rest that can keep your mind from racing. A life fully open to God and people. Because God is here in the present. Did you know that? He's past and future, but he's here right now. And so he said, don't worry about tomorrow and don't worry about your past. I'm forgiving your past. I'm providing for your future, and so be present with me. Now, and when we're not able to rest, we're not able to live where God's at, which is here. Here. Rest is not a place we collapse into when we've finally done enough work. It's the starting place. The, the path we live on with Jesus. Rest isn't this, let me grind, hustle, grind, pop down, rest. Grind, hustle, grind, pop down and rest. That's not sustainable. Jesus doesn't say, grind, hustle, grind, hustle, and then rest. He says, I'm offering you rest for your whole life. It's not a promise not to be tired. Jesus was tired. Tired is not a problem. It's so Why are you tired? Why are you always tired? We all want this. That's the offer, right? I want this. Raise your hand if you would love this kind of rest that Jesus offered. Come on. Honestly, raise your hand. Am, am I? Yeah, okay. Making sure that we're all on the same page. I want want, this kind of rest I want, this kind of posture I want, this kind of stillness in my soul. I've been around people that have this presence because you're rested, and you can just feel they are with you in that moment. But if we're honest, just like Dallas asked Bill, I don't think I would ever ask or say, "relaxed" describing Jesus, and I don't think any of us, maybe one or two, I'm, I'm just, you know, being general, general, help, I don't know if any of us would, in the first five words of our life, say that we are, that the way that we describe our lives is rested in life. Especially not in the Bay Area. Rest isn't a word I use to describe my life. So the offer is this kind of rest. But here's the reality. Point number two, here's the reality. There's, three, one, there's actually three problems that conflict with this kind of rest. If Jesus is offering this kind of rest, what's getting in the way? Well, I see a gap between Jesus, you say, come to me, experience this rest, but I'm not experiencing this rest. So what's going on? Either you're not coming through with your promise, or it's something I'm missing. And I have, a, I have, a, you know, I push my chips on the side that it's not Jesus not coming through on his promise. It's probably something that I'm missing. So let's let's dive into understanding that. We don't want to just come with the posture that Jesus isn't just coming through on his promises. Maybe just look in the mirror first something that we're misaligned with. Three things. One, the reality of our life is that busyness and hustle and hurry is a product and normative of our culture. It's embedded in our way of living, especially in this place. Maybe not in different parts of the country, I'm not sure, I've never lived other places. Living in Eugene, Oregon, a bunch of hippies, a lot of green grass, a lot of rain, it was great. A little was slow down, so maybe it changes where you live, but Bay Area life is not like that. It's embedded in Culture. Our culture, you know, this applauds and affirms people who are grinding and hustling.
1: Grinding and hustling is not a
0: bad term in our culture. It's a term of significance and worth and value. What do tech companies do? I at a, at my friend's tech company next to our old pop shop downtown. It took me on a tour and I saw this huge kitchen full of all kinds of wine and liquor and food and a coffee bar and snacks. It looked like the White House on crack. It was just like everything you can imagine is right there at your fingertips. And I asked him, man, how do you get work done when you have like, all this alcohol and wine and food here? He's like, just work all day, babe. We just stay here for dinner, just food, so we stay here for dinner. We eat here early because there's breakfast, there's lunch, we don't have to leave for lunch. We're always there. Why do they do that? not because they're nice and they want to bless you. They want you to work for them all day. Come on, you think they're that nice? They're trying to make money. Now yes, they want to love you, take care of you, but I I talked to the owner of that company. He knows it's more conducive to make it so that environment is easy for you to stay so you get more productivity. It's smart, right? Let's take care of your needs here, Google. Let's wash your kids, let's raise your kids, let's teach your kids, let's give your kids baths, let's make sure we do your laundry. Everything you can have, you can live on our property, basically, as long as you work all day. You can even sleep things. Our culture applauds overworking. It's normative. And yet, interesting, people feel more distracted than present, more anxious than at least. We say we're always tired. We complain we're always exhausted, we're always in search of one more cup of coffee, we feel overwhelmed and at capacity most of the time, hurrying from one thing to another. We're staying up later, stats say we're getting less sleep than ever before, we're taking on more responsibilities. It's part of our culture. And I would say our most overlooked complaint is that I just don't have I say overlook complaint because it's a common complaint, that we overlook it as, like, harmless. I just don't have enough time. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I don't have enough time. I want to just raise the flag, the red flag of awareness in my whole life to people that that's not good, y'all. That's not healthy. I'm glad the culture says yes to this kind of lifestyle, but it's not the lifestyle that Jesus offered. Ruth Haley Barton Gives a list of symptoms that a hurried life would bring. Let's see how many you would say would be popping up in your life. Irritability. Woo. Hypersensitivity. Restlessness. When we actually do try to rest, we can't calm down. You ever been there? Compulsive overworking. Emotional numbness. We just can't feel. Want to feel, but we just can't escape this behavior. We just get away for a moment, and get out of this lifestyle that needs to escape. Disconnected from our identity and calling. Not able to attend to human needs. Hoarding energy, slippage in our spiritual practice. If we made a list of that and checked it off, like maybe there's 12 items there, I have a feeling for my life. I would predominantly say yes to most of those. In any not always. Not always. And I'm getting better at that. And the Lord has grown over the last couple of years. But certainly in the past, as I've lived for Jesus under certain leaders and pastors and paradigms, I've thought you just got to give it all and give it all um, with your life on the altar in a sense that ends up ruining your soul. And that's not what Jesus demands. But ask yourself that question does any of those things describe your life? Your feeling, your pace, your state. Less sleep, more work. Complain about no have, no margin, no time. Always tired. Pay attention to those things. Those are compatible with the way that Jesus asks us to live. Not just it's embedded into our culture, and this is even more subversive. It's a problem with our identity. It's a problem with our identity i don't know um if the last time you asked someone you got this answer but usually when i ask people how they're doing they say this i'm good just tired i'm good just busy Heck, I say that all the time i'm good just busy doing good doing great the lord's good I'm busy now, I'm, I'm not being facetious or exaggerating i have probably if i had to count how many people have said that to me in the last couple of weeks it'd probably be a majority of people i'm good just busy, just busy. deriving our identity, who we are, from our acta- our actual activity, what we do. See, in some sense, we think it's normal to say I'm busy because we're busy. But in another sense, I'm going to read into this for you because I know from my life, when I tell people I'm busy, I'm not just telling people a fact. I'm telling people I'm busy because I feel like they're going to think I'm more important significant if I'm busy. You ever been that way? Like you tell people I'm busy or you share man, work's just, I'm grinding, I'm hustling for the Lord, or this or that, and you find this low-key subconscious, I feel worth and value from being needed and wanted. It's almost like we feel like we're going to be judged or subhuman if we say, I got all the time in the world. Like, can you imagine? I, I'm afraid to say that. Like, like people are like, how you doing, Pastor? Oh, I'm just resting in the Lord all week. <laughs> you know, we pay you for it. right other side of that point we feel weird saying we feel guilty we should not feel guilty saying we're arrested but we do we should not feel guilty saying we're taking time off but we do why because it's so attached to our identity we find significance worth value importance in that there was a study done once where uh these researchers they created 12 fake accounts on facebook six of the accounts they started posting on all this like wordage about grinding and 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 hustling and they're working overtime and x y and z and their life is all about killing it slaying for the dream the other six people they posted their experiences about leisure and rest and they asked the people as they kind of looked over they used to ask the people that were following these these types of people what do you think about them and overwhelmingly These people, they did not know what was going on. They said the people, they thought the people that were grinding and hustling were probably rich, famous, and had more importance. It's just attached to our identity and this culture in our life. That when you're not doing anything, you must not be that important. But when you're busy, you must be really needed, really wanted, really up to goods. And that has translated into the kingdom of God. Are you resting as a Christian? Come on, we have work to do. There's souls to save. There's people to serve. There's needs to met. And we push guilt on those who are not overstretched. Is that the way of you? Do you find worth than importance in being busy? Do you find significance in not having enough time because you're doing all this good stuff? That's not breaks his heart, because he's offering rest. And so we might feel good to the, to the culture, because we say, look it, I'm doing whatever else is doing, but Jesus doesn't care what the culture thinks. He cares about what he thinks is his kingdom, not their kingdom.
1: So he wants us to live according to his ways,
0: and following the king, as we've seen, is subversive to this world. Upside down. It's a product of our culture. It's entangled with our identity. And lastly, a conflict with God's kingdom. Conflict with God's kingdom. And I want to put this in two lights. Love and the spirit of God. Think about it this way. When Jesus, I mean, when you wear a certain clothes, right, like Nike or whatever, you can see the, the logo. Nike, or Ralph Lauren, or Polo, or Abbotty and Vitch, still a little company. Hollister, I used, to, I used to love Hollister. I was like a beach boy. You know, so um, all those things. Yeah, so uh, you can tell this is Unbranded. this is Everlane. You can tell the context of the shirt or the clothes by the brand. And Jesus set it up that way, whereas Christians, he put a mark on Christians like a logo. He said, if you're going to be my followers, you're going to have, have to have kind of two things flowing out of you at any given time. Love, unity, love, and the fruits of the Spirit. Right? These are kind of the two biggest things that we should look for is, hey, are we loving God, loving people? Are we being a person of love? And do we see the fruits of the Spirit coming out of that person? Love and the fruit of the spirit. Love is having the capacity and presence to seek the good of your neighbor, the margin, and fruit of the spirit. This is what life looks like when you're walking, doing God's work by God's way. But let me just read you these passages, and, and I want you to see how incompatible it is with God's kingdom. This is so convict, but also shocking. First Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Notice those words. Patient, kind, irritable. Those are in direct violation with busyness hurry hustle. Think of the last time you were super busy, super overextended. Tired, whatever, they just were not at rest. Were you patient? Were you kind to people around you? Or were you irritable? I think of, sadly, uh, when I'm trying to get out of church on time, now I take two bars and it actually avoids this conflict. But sometimes when I get out of church, somehow my wife was the last person always to get ready. Probably because she was making everyone's breakfast and dealing with the kids, whatever, they begin to argue about the argument with the later. But she's always the last person to get ready for a church, and I would have this frustration like, "Come on, we need to go. We can't, we can't be." And anytime I was in a hurry, let me just tell you, love didn't ooze out of my. Day. I wasn't loving like oh, kids. I love you. please, please, get in the car. Like, get in the car! Come on, let's, we're pastors. We gotta be here early. Hurry! Did not. Allow me to be a loving person. This is serious. If Jesus commands us to love, then we should find everything that, that combats that kind of work in our life. It's not compatible with business, hurry, hustle, being overextended. extended. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no love. Patience? You feel peace and patience? Would you describe the outworkings of your life as peace and patience when you're overextended and about to burn out? No. Those are the last things on the docket that people are saying that's what explains you. The fruit of the spirit just can't grow in the soil of worry and anxiety. And hustle. The fruit of the spirit just cannot grow in the soil. Of hurry and anxiety and busy. Think of when you're exhausted, overwhelmed, and hurry. Maybe think of the last time you were just burnt out. Maybe you've burnt out right now. Are you a person of love in those times? You bear the spirit's fruit. Imagine 9 out of 10 is no. Why? Because that's just not the way Jesus designed us right. to live. He offers rest, but we don't experience it. We don't live resting. We wouldn't we describe ourselves as resting. It's normalized in our culture. It's wrapped up in our identity. and It's incompatible with God's kingdom. So what's the deal? How do we experience the rest that Jesus promises them? Like, if this is so much of a pervasive problem, I want to know what's up. How can I experience that kind of rest? Let me tell you, those who don't believe in Jesus, the, prop, the way they fix their overworking, exhausted posture and life is they usually numb themselves. I don't want to numb myself to feel rest. I don't want to just say no to everything to feel rest. That's not what Jesus is saying. Remember, he's saying you can still work and feel rest. There's a way that is strong. The world might be able to rest from work, but the world will never give you anything to feel rest in work. Only Jesus can offer rest in work. And so let's go back to our verse, Matthew 11 28. About seventeen minutes left. And Matthew eleven twenty-eight. The secret is in the text. I don't know if you've noticed it, but the promise is there, but also the condition. Let's read it again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Look what he says next. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is key, my burden love how Jesus is so clear. His promise is not without a condition. We want X. But Jesus says if you want X, you got to do Y. If you want rest, you got to do this. He doesn't say come to me and you'll experience rest only. No, no. Come to me and you'll experience rest. Why? When you take up my yoke and learn from me. This is the general principle of Christian life. We, we can't want the result without being able and willing to do the work. This is a lot. the enemy wants you to know and think about that, that Christian life is just automatic. Jesus will naturally bless you and change you, but the Christian life is hard. Jesus says the road to destruction is what? Wide and easy. The road to life is narrow and hard. Hard meaning it costs you something. It takes Effort. Effort is not a bad word in the kingdom. And especially when the effort required is the path and means to to actually obtaining rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from it. What does that mean? (laughs) You know what a yoke is, right? you ever probably knocked it open. Last time you see a yoke, it's probably on your your stove, not actually an animal. But that's not what the yoke is talking about. The yoke is this wooden beam that had two metal rings, and you would put the cows or whatever in those metal beams to be yoked together to, to be able to pull at the same pace the burden behind them. Now, before we understand what that means, there was a sense of understanding that the Jews understood when Jesus said that, that we missed because we don't have the point. So, is it okay if I give you like a three-minute history lesson? century history lesson. um here's a little history lesson it's really helpful because jesus's language to take my yoke upon you and roam for me was really a discipleship kind of language it was discipleship if you read along with the passages we put out jesus is constantly telling people hey follow me follow me follow me follow me and they would give up everything and follow jesus and jesus is saying the same thing here in different words and so I want you to understand quickly, just kind of the context of what Jesus was growing up in that made the Jews understand this. Jews, boys and girls, would start out going to school at about four or five, kind of elementary school. And the school was kind of attached to the side of the synagogue, taught by a local uh, rabbi, especially in the first century of Galilee, taught by a local rabbi. Rabbis would teach of the law, train in understanding Torah, and the prophets and the writings. About five to ten, four to ten, five to ten, Children will learn to read and write and study, memorizing most of the Torah. If you don't feel bad about, you know, scripture memorization yet, uh, these children, at the age of their process of elementary school, would most likely memorize the whole Torah. That's not the first five words of the Bible. That's the first five books of the Bible. They memorized it. Why? Because it was an old culture. That's how they learned how to read and write. Those people think Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible about God's word, it starts with this, uh, different letters of the alphabet. It's also how they taught their, their kids how to, how to learn the alphabet was through God's word. God's word was the first kind of grounding for that kind of culture to learn. And betsefer was what that context at the school was called. Betsefer in the house of the book. in the Torah. And children would go on from that, ages 10 and 12, to go to Bet Talmud, which means house of learning, more deeper, general the Torah. Now they would go more deeper, and they would study oral interpretations, not just what the Bible said, their, their Torah, but also what other people said about it, the commentaries behind it. And they would learn the rest of the scriptures, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets, and they would start memorizing chunks of those. Now, at this age, age 12, we are, a lot of the females would not continue because they would be getting married around that age, 13, 14, having kids. And at age 12, usually, the boys, if they did not advance, and I'll tell you that in a second, why, um, they would start their apprenticeship under their trade. So, for Jesus, that's why you see Jesus teaching in the synagogue around age 12. And also, why people say he was a carpenter, because he would also, he probably went through this kind of school, that that's that Talmud, and then he probably picked up his dad's trade, but the gifted students, this was boys in that culture at this time, the gifted students, the top of the top, the freaks, the, the, the ones that got straight A's, that came from well-to-do homes, they would join this level of learning called the house of study. They would study under a famous rabbi, 24-7, 365, for a few years. They would travel, leave home, leave their apprenticeship, leave their trade, and travel on along the path, wherever the rabbi went, teaching his synagogues, and the word for that person, that physician, was called taliban, our word, disciple. They were disciples. They followed the rabbi. Every disciple, every disciple in that culture, would have four specific goals. This is not just from, like, loose historical study, and this is from the Mishnah, which is a text written in about 70 years before Jesus, um, and this, this was kind of like the interpretation of what was happening in that time, take it back almost a dozen years ago. Four goals that every disciple, every Talmud would have under the rabbi, and, and just remember this is in light of Jesus talking about yoke and learning, four goals, one, the first goal for every disciple student was to memorize their teacher's words of oral culture, they wanted to memorize what their rabbi, the rabbi would have authority to teach the law, Torah, and to interpret it. The Pharisees had their own interpretations. Jesus says, the thing that you're doing is causing crushing burdens to go into fast because Their interpretations were more heavy than what they were supposed to do. Memorize their teacher's word. Number two, they were to learn their teacher's traditions and interpretations. That means they were supposed to learn how they pray, how this person passed how this person prayed over food, how this person loved the sick. This was how our disciple learned, they were supposed not just learn the teaching, but learn the way, the the actual traditions of lifestyle living for this grandma. Number three, they would imitate their actions, live like he did, copy them, imitate them in deed and speech. They wanted to speak like him and and pray like him and and teach like him. And then lastly, so forth, they would raise up their own disciple. disciples. That's why Jesus, at the end of his time, said, what? Go will make disciples. You followed me for three years. I'm a rabbi. You're my, my disciple. You've done this. You've learned my teaching. You've mimicked me. You've imitated me. You've learned how I prayed, how I loved, how I ate, how I rested. Now go and make disciples. Disciples' goal was to become like the rabbi. This is the context that we see Jesus' word, follow me and take up my yoke and learn me. This is what it means for us, 21st century, to follow Jesus, three things. To be with Jesus, because every student, every disciple had to be with, be with the rabbi. Our goals, to follow Jesus, are to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then out of those two things, to do with Jesus did. Progressive, we start out with being with Jesus, then we go to becoming like Jesus, who we are, and then out of who we are, because we've been with Jesus, we're becoming like Jesus, we do what Jesus did. Now, Jesus did Jesus see this way? Yes. That's why in Mark 3, Mark chapter three, verse fourteen, he said this. And he appointed twelve whom we name apostles so that they might be with him. He was on the mountain praying. He woke up after praying and said, I'm gonna choose twelve of my disciples to be apostles, sent ones, and I'm gonna choose them for this purpose. So that he might send them out to preach and have authority over casting meetings. What does that mean? Apprenticeship, discipleship, be so you can be, with me so you can become like me, so you can do what I do. Jesus had that mind train. Later on in Luke, he says a disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus was always planning this way. When he said, come and follow me to be my disciple, which is, by the way, every word that we're I don't know if you know, but the word Christian, the label Christian in the New Testament is used, I think, three times. The label disciple is used over 250 times. The predominant way to label a Christian is not Christian, is disciple. To be like our teacher. To be, when you're fully trained, he says you're going to be like me. This even stretches to what Paul said in First Corinthians 11. He said what? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is actually what students, rabbis would do as they grow their disciples. They're imitating. Now they become a teacher, and they say, hey, imitate me as I imitate my rabbi. And we would say, hey, follow my ways as I follow you. I'm trying to live just like him, and I want you to follow along. This is where we get it twisted. This is where we miss out on the rest. Because we see discipleship more of a student relationship than an apprentice relationship. Students just want to know what the teacher teaches. They want information. And in our culture, we're so guilty of over abundance of information in churches, who flood ourselves with information as the goal, not the means. Students just want to know what the teacher has to say. Apprentices want to be transformed into who the teacher is. Students just want to be informed by them. Apprentices want to be transformed into. Every time someone was following Jesus, he said, come follow me. They weren't thinking, I'm just here to study and know. They were thinking, I'm here to become like him. I want to follow everything that he does. Less about goals, more about formation. Not just about what we're doing, come on somebody, but more about who we're becoming. Less about What we're doing, it's so important, what we do matters. But it's a means to an end of who we're becoming. Do you know who you're becoming? Or are you just focused on what you're doing? And I've lost sight of the goal. The goal isn't just to memorize the Bible. The goal isn't just to come on Sunday to listen to the sermon. The goal isn't to read the Bible every day to do that. It is a means to becoming more like Jesus, a person of love and rest and gratitude and service. Roman says that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He chose you out of the world to follow him, so he can conform you to be like him. Because being like Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, is to be fully human. Being like Jesus is to be fully human. So, back to the verse: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is what Jesus said. Best way I know how to write it up. I live at my pace, by my side, with me carrying the brunt of the load. Wow! Attach yourself to me. Live how I live at my pace, with me carrying the load. Live as my apprentice, not just student. Train under me. Learn my values. Imitate my lifestyle. Frederick Dale Werner he was a commentator. He said this: A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. <laughs> they need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. Bokesh well, there is his stone port, but Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life. A fresh way to bear responsibility. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers new equipment. Instead of offering escape from the burdens of life, he says, I can't get you out of this world quite yet, but I can make sure I you some new equipment to live in this world. That is the yoke of Jesus. We live according to his pace, by his side, letting him carry the load. Does it involve teaching? Yes. Primarily, we need to know. Because knowing is the main means to transforming. So knowledge isn't a bad thing. Sermons aren't a bad thing. Please, no. Read your Bible more than you ever have after a sermon. But do it with the mindset of making sure you're watching who you're becoming, not just checking out boxes of what you're doing. So you can read your Bible your whole life and not get it. But you also can read your Bible three times a week and become more like Jesus than the person who read your Bible. It's not about activity before being. Activity the pathway to be. Jesus isn't offering us rest from work or break or holiday. He isn't promising an easy life with no demands. He's offering us a set of values, teachings, rhythms, and ways to live in this world that will help us experience the soul rest. We can. Some of us have yokes on our necks and our backs, but they're not Jesus' yokes. And so we're stuck with bearing the burden, even, let me say, Christians having all that Jesus commanded to do, love your neighbor, serve the poor, all these things. That can be a burden that's not supposed to be a burden. Why? Because we're taking on the yoke, and we're trying to love our neighbors. We're trying to serve the poor. We're trying to encourage. We're trying to give. And we're doing everything Jesus said to do, but we're living like everyone else in the world. That's why we feel rested. We're not rested. That's why we feel hurried and anxious. It's not just enough to do the commands of Jesus. You got to follow His pattern of life. How did Jesus live? Back the beginning. Unhurried, present, minimal, withdrawn, often for silence, solitude, or prayer, resting. So the next three weeks, I told you this was a burden. And We're going to look at these practices the way that Jesus lived. He never commanded really simplicity, but he lived it. He never commanded silence and solitude, but he lived it. The Bible says so often, he did this as a regular custom where he got away to be with the Father. Do we not think there's a connection between him having silence and solitude and him being a loving person? There's a huge connection. When Jesus was frazzled with so many people in the crowd, Luke says he got away from them. For us, we think, no, no, we got to love our neighbors. Love, love, love. No, no, no. You're trying to do the burden without being yoked to the master. You're trying to carry the load of love, love, love without being yoked to Jesus when Jesus would say, get away, kid, get, get away. Those needs are going to be there. Take a break so your soul gets refreshed so you can come back and be a loving person. Worship team is going to come up. So we're going to look at simple, sim- simplicity next week and a practice that Jesus did to help. Thing that was so strikingly overwhelming characteristically of Jesus' life that he did so often. And let me tell you, I don't like that word silence and solitude. I hate silence. I don't like being by myself. I get itchy. I feel like the world's crashing down on me when I'm quiet. I just get anxious. Why? Because this world's not built around silence and solitude and just slowing down. But our goal is first and foremost to be with Jesus. We love you with Jesus. The last day we're going to look at the practice of silence. Jesus did the command Sabbath, but he actually elevated Sabbath to be a very different but important, significant pattern practice in all life. And if you haven't seen this advertising, this book, uh, The Ruthless Formation of Hurry, is going through these four chapters, one more on this school list that we're not going to include. Great uh, resource. We're going to sell it for 10 bucks back there. There's usually like 16 or so. You can't afford it at the top list, whatever, but you, can you can put money in the bucket and just all online and private. But we want to give this away. And, um, and be able to have you read these as a, as a resource to you know, add some really good practices to pack what inside around what we're talking about. You Stand with me? I want you to realize the, the invitation that Jesus has for you, today. handing out a three-step program to be more efficient in your life. We don't need more goals, more life hacks, or more time. Let me repeat that. Your, your issue, your need, is not more goals, more life hacks, or more time. Your goal is not to be more efficient with the busy loads you have. Your goal is to yoke yourself to Jesus and live in the patterns that he lives. And the best way to do that is to come to him. He says he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. So will you come to him? Not just as a student, but as an apprentice. Not just to know, but to become. Will you come to him? I love what John Holbrook says, i close with this. He says, hurry isn't just a disordered schedule, it's a disordered heart. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule, it's a disordered heart when we come to Jesus, we're not asking him to redo our schedule as much as we're saying redo our heart, Lord. Redo our heart, change it so we can become like you. Where we put being with you becoming like you up above doing a whole bunch of things that are good. Amen? And then Jesus, we come to you. Not a set of teachings that just are teachings, not just a set of rules or demands or a burden. We come to you to put on your yoke. You are offering yourself as the way to find rest. So we come to you, Lord, to give us rest for our souls, give us rest for our heart, give us stillness of mind, give us a pace and a cadence and a rhythm that helps us to produce and cultivate love. Love.